This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Hindu's podcast on books. I am Shoma Basu, your host today. And our guest with me today is journalist Barkha Dutt, who requires no introduction. But it is my privilege to introduce her briefly. A familiar face on NDTV for two decades, Barkha, as a TV journalist, anchor and columnist, has reported from some of the toughest spots and conflict zones in India and across the world, including Pakistan, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya and Egypt. Her frontline reporting of the Kargil War made her a household name. With a master's in journalism from Columbia University in New York, Barkha is India's only Emmy-nominated journalist who has won several national and international awards, including the Padma Shri. She is now the founder editor of Mojo, a multimedia events and content venture. Her new book, Humans of COVID to Hell and Back, published by Juggernaut, is a poignant account of hardships and loss that millions of Indians faced with courage during the carnage of COVID during the last two years. Barkha traveled 30,000 kilometers across 14 states to bring us this book. And she's here with us today to talk about it in more detail. A very warm welcome to you, Barkha. Thank you so much and thank you for having me so much. Yeah, and also congratulations on writing this very people-centric book that I think that brings to the fore every possible emotion we hold as humans. And as you also have aptly mentioned, the book is all about that what you saw and what you learned. I would like to begin with, you know, by asking what was the actual trigger for the book? And it's, of course, your second solo book, as we discussed, because you've always been grounded in reporting. And so why and when did this idea occur to you that this has to convert into a book? Actually, the idea for the book first came to me during the first wave. And, you know, at that time, I was very, very closely following the exodus of the migrant workers in the millions as they left the cities and walked home to their villages because, of course, public transport during the first wave had been shut down and they had no other way to get anywhere except to walk. And I remember towards the end of the first wave, when we did not know that a second wave would be coming, is when I first thought, of recording all that I had seen because what started off as a as a way to follow what happened to these workers ended up being a countrywide uh, road journey that took me from Delhi to Kerala and even to and back to Ladakh at one point and so on and as you mentioned it ended up being thirty thousand kilometers and near one hundred and twenty days of of road travel and I really felt that all that I had learned about my country and the people I'd met should be documented in a book because you know real time reporting and real time journalism is very different from stepping back and having a perspective and being able to capture uh, it in a narrative form for for posterity in a way. So the written word still has that gravitas and still has that permanence somehow uh, and context. And everyday news is decontextualized quite often because it's so immediate and it's so real, real life. And then, of course, as I was thinking of this book, a few months later, the second wave hit. And then, of course, I couldn't actually begin to write it till the second wave had settled and, you know, till my own life had settled a bit for me to be able to confront 
everything that had happened and I had witnessed again. So as a woman journalist, like you said, you were on the roads for 120 days. I mean, of course, you have the experience of, you know, all the time journeying for all kinds of reportage. But how this experience was particularly different for you or how challenging it was, because I think each region and each day as the disease progressed, as the sufferings of people increased, I mean, each region would have thrown up different set of challenges for you. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, in some ways, I had exposure, especially like because I had covered war. Uh, and in some ways, I say if I had to, you know, bookend so far my experience in journalism, at one end of the two decades would stand the Kargil War and at the other end would stand COVID. But yet COVID was very different because it was over a very long period of time, unlike reporting a conflict or a war that is often within a finite time frame. Secondly, there was literally no information available when we started reporting about the disease itself. So even simple things like whether you need to wear a mask or not, the fact that the virus is airborne, this was not known when we started traveling. So in fact, there was much more emphasis on washing your hands, wearing gloves, because at that time it was mistakenly believed the virus spreads by surface, which we later got to know is, is not the case, right? Then there was the added challenge of, you know, I reported previous stories as a journalist. So this time I also was a startup entrepreneur, a media entrepreneur. So I was responsible for the other three people who were traveling with me, you know, whereas earlier the, I worked in organizations that were responsible for me. So I felt a lot of added pressure and anxiety about that. Then there was language, you know, as you move into different regions, right? You had to, language was an issue, cultural sensibilities, how people respond, how people grieve, how people emote, you know, all of these shift within our country as you go from one, one state to another. And then you had to be mindful of your own privilege. That was a very strange experience for me because, you know, I was mostly reporting. I mean, in the second wave, the virus crossed classes in a very, very overt way. But in the first wave, I was mostly reporting on extremely poor people who did not often even have a bottle of water as they walked, you know, hundreds of kilometers home or who sat outside hospitals sleeping on cardboard strips. So my own privilege, it was a big struggle for me to reconcile that I would report on them, that I would sit in my car I'm not saying it was easy, uh, you know, my journey was easy, but it was always easier than everybody that I was reporting on. So I found it very difficult to reconcile that privilege and it made me feel very guilty, though it wasn't my fault, but it made me feel very guilty. So as a reporter, what do you do to, you know, overcome those conflicting, you know, situations? Like, how do you deal with them? Like, you're so experienced, your vast experience would have kind of made you much hardened also. That's a great question, you know. In some ways, the way I have trained myself and, you know, everybody has their own way is that I, it's, you have to have almost surgical precision. It's like a surgeon in an, you know, in an operation theater. You have to not, you have to be able to have your wits about you to capture the moment and to tell the story, right? And yet you have to not lose empathy. Because if you're without empathy, unlike a surgical operation, if you're without empathy, you're not even capturing that moment accurately, right? Because you're capturing tragedy. And to be honest, I can't say that I'm always 
perfect or my tone is always right or i always ask the most sense you know i always handle it in the most sensitive way i really try that's all you can do and what i told myself was that the way for me to resolve this conflict is to tell the most powerful account that i can present and hope very much that that powerful account helps to better this situation right so i am not a charity worker i am not a policy maker i am not a doctor and i am not a scientist i am a reporter so i have to stick to my core skill and hope that through my core skill it will help the lives of the people i'm reporting on by giving them a voice and by moving other people who may not even be aware of their plight because a lot of that happened in the first wave people were just looking away they didn't want to confront these things right because people everyone was so scared you know and 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 people didn't really want to confront this and so my job was that the stories that i report on should be powerful enough that they move change they make change possible and i think that's all a journalist can hope to do so every individual that you met and that every individual you you interviewed they had of course a story of anguish to share with you so of all the people you met you know like is it possible to mention uh, mention some specific two or three people who will remain with you forever i mean another great question because you know i must have met like thousands of people in two years right but yes some do stay with me some because of uh, the resilience they showed and the kindness they showed and some because of the kind of magnitude of what they went through right so you know like i always think of mukesh mandal who was a migrant worker from bihar who basically and he obviously was a daily wager he lost all his income almost immediately after the lockdown and he sold his phone and we actually found in our travels that that was the first asset that almost every worker sold because they didn't have too many other assets the phone was the first thing that got sold and with those few thousand rupees you know he brought home some rations and he brought home a table fan because it was still very hot uh, you know at that time of the year in uh, he lived uh, in in a urban slum in haryana and he then a day later took his wife's uh, sort of scarf and he he basically tied it to a bamboo pole and he took his life and when we went to tell his story you know we met his family we we visited his family a year later and it was a haunting haunting tragedy to think of this man who sold his phone and then and then there was leelawati you know leelawati was an elderly woman who was thrown out by her children because they didn't want to take responsibility for her during this lockdown she had nowhere to go she had no family and i found her sitting alone outside a railway station yeah i remember the video clip you kind of put out on the social media yeah hers was a story that crossed all audiences like whether you were rich poor male female like literally everybody called me up to say you know can we help her and in that moment was great tragedy but was great kindness also like the number of people who called wanting to help her it made me feel that there was deep compassion at the heart of indian society that sometimes we lose track of because we're too busy commenting on trolls and arguments on tv and twitter we forget that this kindness she'd been through of course severe cruelty but there was also kindness in the responses to her and so she stays with me and then there was you know abdul malbari who's a social worker in, in surat and he runs a foundation called the ekta trust out of one room 
and his ambulance, uh, it has a message on it that it says that he organizes funerals for lonely humans. And basically, you know, people, bodies were being abandoned during COVID because there was so much stigma around, misplaced stigma around the disease. And people were too scared to touch bodies or cremate them or bury them. And this gentleman was, you know, basically doing what families were declining to do. And there were many volunteers like him in other states also that I met who did this. And, you know, religion didn't matter, you know. And while our TV channels had hate hashtags like Corona Jihad, here was this man who, irrespective of Hindu and Muslim, was basically even cremating bodies at Hindu, you know, for, for the Hindu community because there were people who no one was willing to, I mean, there were bodies that no one was willing to touch and they were just abandoned and sometimes at the hospital. So these are some of the individuals who really stay with me. And that's what I also liked in your book. I mean, of course, on one side, there was too much of suffering, but at the same time, these positive nuggets, you know, which came out and they give hope, you know. So as we were progressing, Barkha, like on your journey, uh, you, you also write in the book that you found how the pandemic was uncovering all kinds of gaps, you know, whether it was in matter of healthcare or education or social structure. And you also mentioned journalism. So would you a little bit elaborate on that? So, you know, one, it uncovered things for me in my own journey as a journalist, right? So the book starts with a story about a village where, which is just one hour from the national capital. And it's called the village with yellow, you know, the village with yellow water. And at that time, all the messaging we were telling people was that please wash your hands, wash your hands a few times a day, wash your hands a few times a day. And we didn't pause to think what happens to places where there is no running water, right? And secondly, imagine now a village where there is running water, but it's chemically contaminated because of all the industries, polluting industries around it. And so every time the villagers would wash their hands, their bodies would break into rashes. And they'd been protesting for a long time, but nobody's been paying any attention. And basically to drink water, they actually had to purchase water because the water was not portable and it wasn't even okay to wash themselves with. So when I went to report on this story, I realized that it, the story was under my nose, you know, and I had never covered these issues. I had never covered issues of social inequity, of social injustice, of development stories. And somewhere, you know, we had got obsessed, or at least I, who started by covering conflict uh, and then moved to covering politics. Somewhere I feel like, it, especially in my sort of latter years in television, I had become also very studio bound, though I was keep trying to report, but you know, I, I had lost, I felt a connect with people, with, with people's issues and with what really matters to people, which is health and schooling and justice and equality and safety, you know, uh, just the basics. And somewhere I wasn't reporting on any of these things. This was perhaps the first time in my journalistic life that I reported on these issues. And I'd also stopped reporting as much as I liked, you know, I'd slipped into that trap of talking heads. And so COVID really took me out of that and it uncovered, I think, the gap between the media and the issues that concern people. And, you know, we live in a navel-gazing sort of universe sometimes. We think what we are obsessed with is what people care about. And often that's not the case. So it, this was a very instructive period of rediscovering why I became a journalist. And I think I lost track of that sometime in the middle. 
So did it kind of intimidate you or depress you in any way as you went on this 30,000 kilometers journey? And as you yourself said, no, like out of the studio and a kind of regaining this people connect as a journalist. What were your own personal emotions that you were going through? Look, it was difficult. Logistics became almost as challenging as telling the story, you know, in the first wave, especially because of no public transport because of no food and water available on the expressways that we were traveling on. To find a place to stay, you had to eat, to get a hotel to give you a room, because hotels were effectively closed, except for house, you know, internal guests. You needed permission from the local administration. So you had to call district magistrates, local administration. Like, everything was an obstacle, right? We'd also left with, you know, there were no shops to, like, these are functional things. I, I ran out of clean clothes. I ran out of shoes you know i ran out of like people were very very kind you know as they followed this journey complete strangers who now have become friends sent khana sent food opened their homes for us because like we didn't have places to stay we were staying at some quite often sometimes at friends friends friend oh he or she has a farm here they can open farm means actual farm not a farm farmhouse like they can open a door here you can stay here once we stayed in some you know, university campus guest house. Once we hotels, as I told you, when they did open, the district administrator had to had to clear it. So there was the challenge of logistics, which was a bit intimidating because it was happening alongside finding the mechanisms to report this tragedy. And I was certainly depressed, and I think I continue to be so because I found it very difficult to write the book. You know, once or twice I called my editor, Chiki, and I said, I can't do the book. I can't do it. And I would collapse in tears while writing it. I And I couldn't sleep at night. My sleep cycle is just disrupted. And, you know, a lot of my friends said that, you know, you should go and see a professional therapist because we think you're, you know, you're clinically depressed. I don't know. I haven't done that yet. In some ways, the process of writing the book was very difficult, but once it was done, there was some cathartic release in it. It was just more tragedy and bleakness. But yes, as you said, what kept me going was this kind of compassion and kindness and generosity that I saw in my country and in, in our people, right? There were so many stories of resilience, of what people were willing to do to protect their families, to keep them healthy. You know, Jyoti, the young girl who cycled 1,200 kilometers because her father could, had had an operation. Think of this young girl, what parents were willing to do for children and children were willing to do for parents and spouses and friends were willing to do for each other. And sometimes what strangers were willing to do for complete strangers, you know, it was so moving. So in the depression, there was also great, there was a, there was a very fine, side of human nature and it was a it was a paradoxical time which is why i write in the book that it was a kind of dickinsonian kind of you know best and worst of 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 times to that extent that it was the best and worst of the human spirit that one got to see yeah i totally relate with you know even in our earlier years when you used to go on these long political campaigns or rallies and the villages, when you go into the interiors, the villages really open up their houses, you know. And I remember Punjab, Haryana, where people will offer you glasses of lassi and khana. And you know, that's very true. And the generosity, they're very, very generous. Exactly. 
So apart from keeping yourself motivated, you also, as you said, you in the beginning, you had your team with you. I think you must have selected your core team who would travel with you these 120 days to even keep them motivated because everybody's you know level of sensibility sensitivity is different so how did you cope with those internal pressures also it's a very interesting question look me and my team you know consisted just of three more people my producer a camera person and my driver my driver Vinod has been with me for you know 20 years so he's a little more adjusted to my personality but for the other, and, and for the work we do, you know, the kind of work, but even for him, his job was actually, he was driving this 30,000 kilometers, he did it. So it was really difficult. And, you know, we all took, I don't drive, but the others took turns at driving. I'm not able to drive other than that. But I think they were motivated by, you know, that sense of, this is why we became, this is our job. This is actually our job, that we became journalists to do this that actually after so long that feeling that you were actually making a difference to real lives you know that you weren't just doing this tutu meme kind of debate inside a studio and i think of course people had moments of anxiety it was high stress i i won't say we never had arguments of course there were a few you know high pressure moments but mostly i think it was just a magnitude of you know you we felt like chroniclers of a kind of moment in history that was sad, but was also so enormous that it was almost a privilege. I don't know if it sounds right, but to be able to chronicle it. Because frankly, as journalists, this is our time. This was the world's biggest story that a journalist could ever you know, get to report on. I think in our lifetime, this will probably be the most cataclysmic event that globally at a global scale and 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 i think that my team also felt that to be able to report it from the ground was a rare almost like an opportunity that you know that we were able to go out when the country was locked down and it was a there was a sense of feeling that your your work mattered and i think for a long time i hadn't felt that feeling you know of that your work matters you know, at a personal level, even I teared up actually reading chapter eight on fathers and daughters. Uh, like many of your followers by now, of course, also know that the book also had a part of your personal journey. And at this, like, and how you're beautifully written that how your grief, though it felt personal, it was also universal. So could you talk about it a little bit about your dad? and Yeah. So my father, so my sister and I were effectively raised by a single parent, my father, because my mother, who was a journalist, died when I was 13. And my father effectively brought up, brought us up. And, you know, he was the only parent we had known and had effectively all our lives, except for our early teen years. And, you know, my father got COVID when I was out in the field reporting. I was in Maharashtra and Gujarat when he was first diagnosed with COVID. And at that time, you needed an RT-PCR test to be able to cross borders of states. And so even to go back, it was like a couple of days wait, right? Because it's not now, it's not like now when you're able to get results in real time or in a few hours. It wasn't like that then. There was again enormous pressure on the testing system. So the results were uh, took time. And I initially was not alarmed because the doctors felt that he should be treated at home and he should not be going to a hospital. So, you know, we tried 
to treat him and then his situation worsened and i i had a horrible sense of the news coming home i by then i came back to delhi and basically in panic you know of course like i said i became the story i was reporting on albeit again constantly aware of my privilege that i was able to plead and cajole the doctors to agree to give him space in a general he was supposed to go into a general room initially and not into the icu and i panicked the hospital ambulance was not available immediately so i made the mistake of organizing a private ambulance which i'd heard of someone said oh we know private ambulance service should be sent you the number and we called a private ambulance and the moment that car arrived i knew that something was terribly wrong because it was an old maruti van that had been reconfigured it had one cylinder lying on the floor at the back it had no paramedics and i was you know part of me felt at that time maybe we should wait and then i just panicked and you know we somehow my father and his we had a nurse for him by then they got into the back i got into the front seat but the oxygen cylinder uh, did not work as it should have and so he did not receive high flow oxygen so by the time we got into the emergency his oxygen levels had plummeted and he had to be taken into an icu but there was no icu bed available so he sat in a wheelchair in the hospital foyer as i you know just pleaded with the doctors please 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 of course it took time but you know these were all the stories i had reported of how people couldn't get a bed and they were outside and of course again i will say that my privilege was that i was still able to get him in he didn't die at the doors of a at the closed doors of a hospital or inside the ambulance uh, or in a, in my case it was a fraud ambulance and then i you know i couldn't meet him and that also felt very ironic because in other situations with the consent of patients in hospitals i had reported from inside hospitals but obviously this was my own father so i wasn't allowed you know it wasn't journalistic so i wasn't allowed to meet him and and then 5 days later he died and then as he died we couldn't bring his body even back to his home because it would have taken special permission because it involved crossing a border so we took him to the cremation ground nearest to the hospital when we went to the cremation ground we found that there was no space you know there was such a deluge of bodies and families that there was no space and there ended up being this horribly ugly fight between families to get space and we had to call the police we had to again a sort of you know use our networks of people we knew and through them find somebody in the local police who then helped us cremate my dad and settle settle this fight and then i came home and on that evening you know i tested positive for covid so in all of the ways like losing my father and then watching the struggle and the helplessness and then the cremation ground crunch the oxygen cylinder failing in the ambulance it was such a surreal feeling to go from being the chronicler to a protagonist in your own in your own in a in a sense journey you know so far this journey had been that of others and i was the witness and now it was also my own story so to speak and i didn't know what to do you know with my grief i could scarcely process it i was also sick so i kept working through it from my basement where i was isolating and then the moment like i was able to get past my own covid i didn't know again what to do so i just set out again and then i realized as i met more and more families and that's why i wrote in the book that of course 
all of our losses feel very personal to us. But it was like this universal moment. And I mean, there's so many daughters that I write about in the book who'd also lost their fathers. And there was this a kind of community of of mourning, you know. It was a community of mourners. And yeah, I mean, I think we still mourn and we still... Sorry for touching on your personal grief. No, no, but what I also no. liked, uh, liked the most about you in your journey and also the book was, you know, how you remained strong and focused and functional, you know, in, 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 in such a traumatic situation. I mean, I try. I'm not sure that I always do a good job, but I do try. So it was also, you know, at the same time, it was also very nice to read in the book about stories of other individuals, the non-COVID uh, people you wrote about, yes. you know, maybe who were suffering from other diseases or the COVID warriors whose sufferings were no less. So this also kind of is an essential core of the book, though it started with the migrants and then how you moved on. So was that, did you have that structured thought in your mind or as you were, you know, kind of going forward with your journey, things evolved? Well, I think things evolved uh, as I was going forward in my journey, to be completely honest. You know, I didn't, I would find myself outside of these hospitals and I would keep talking to people. And I discovered initially quite by accident. Then, of course, I started looking for it, but, uh, you know, to see what was happening, that a number of people who would come to these hospitals were people with other ailments. So someone with cancer, someone with a kidney disease who needed a dialysis, someone with a little child who had thalassemia, right? Tuberculosis. And there was, because all of these hospitals had become COVID-only hospitals, and sometimes as COVID spread through our health workers, the hospitals were becoming non-functional, especially in the first wave. I realized that, you know, the non-COVID poor, especially again, were not being able to access healthcare. And nobody was talking about them because the entire focus was on COVID. And actually, we've not even begun to tabulate. I think there have been some studies, but it will take us a while to process, you know, what happened to all of these people. And like it started for me with a very tragic story, but again, a powerful story of resilience of these of these family of daughters who cremated their father, who was a tea vendor and a poor tea vendor who couldn't get an ambulance and died from tuberculosis. And they cremated him. And then I went to meet that family. And from there, I started in each city finding and town and villages, finding people who were not able to get treatment for other ailments. Similarly, with the COVID warriors, while, of course, there was a lot of focus on celebrating doctors. And, you know, what we don't understand is what happened to doctors and health workers once they came home. So there was so much misinformation and fake news about how COVID spreads that these doctors and healthcare workers, sometimes they couldn't get a, couldn't even be cremated or buried without stigma. Talk and about Dr. Simon, no? Chennai-based doctor. Yes, a horrible story. And the family had to go to court to actually be able to cremate him many months later where he wanted to because the body and the friends and family were attacked with stones and bricks by people. And then similarly, the nurse who comes back from COVID duty is... is you know, fellow sort of flatmates want to evict him, apartment mates in the building. There's a, a doctor I write about in Surat who who actually, the neighbor on the landing across her started abusing her, told her to leave the building. There were two uh, best friends in Indore, Hindu and Muslim, who got stoned in a neighborhood that they... So all of this happened. There was the nurse in Mumbai who actually had been on duty when Ajmal Kasab 
was part of the 2611 attack and Ajmal Kasab had come into her hospital and her job was to protect and save the new babies, newborn babies and new mothers. And she said how in some ways COVID was even more depleting for her because it just showed no end inside, you know. So I and it's really wonderful that you could reach out to her. I mean, you could meet her. No, that that must have been yeah. Been she was answer. extraordinary. So there are all these, you know, extraordinary people. And even in these bleak moments, they were extraordinary people. You know, and and I really feel like that's all I really wanted to do in this book was to make people feel that people had been noticed, their courage and their compassion had been noticed, their tragedy counted for something, that they weren't going to be an unlisted untold life that's that's what that's the only thing i try to do in this book that this impact of coronavirus of course it touched everybody in some form or the other and you traveled so extensively into the interiors what is your perception or what do you think you know the most important lesson people would have derived from this whole experience speaking from people's perspective and not from policy because this is not a policy book Speaking from that perspective, I think it reminds you that everything else that we fight about is absolutely irrelevant, right? When a crisis hits, all you have is is the people you care for. And sometimes the kindness of strangers and the intimacy of strangers will keep you going. Like I think what the lesson for me is that there is still a lot of compassion that is alive in our people. And civil society really came together. Yes, there were ugly moments. Yes, there were moments of stigma and cruelty. But actually, people really stood with each other. People helped each other with food, with uh, with oxygen cylinders, with beds, with, with any little and big thing that they could, right? And I, I just think that it's a reminder to us of what really matters in life. Okay, as a wrap-up, I'll ask Barka, like, you know, as you, as a journalist, as an author, you say that COVID was a test like na- none other. For you and for so many others as well. So uh, how you became obsessed to write this story as a people's story. So of course, as you earlier also mentioned in, during the talk that it was perhaps one of the most difficult assignments and experience you've had and something which none of us would like to face again. So but, uh, but, but writing about people's resilience and compassionate one would always love to go on and on about it. So your wrap-up thoughts on this particular on writing this particular book well this book is as i say i think i write in the book that it's partly personal but i really see it as a story of india and i really see it as a story of people and i feel like literally everybody will find a shade of something that happened to them in this book it's a book not just book for everyone i think it's a book about everyone to the extent that any book can be about everyone for me, like, I just think whether it's in the positives of people who are heroes or whether it's in the, you know, how COVID held a mirror to our inequalities or whether it, it is to our fears, our anxieties, how we reevaluated our lives, how we reprioritize what matters to us. I think that there was something universal. Yes, COVID was not the great equalizer. And yet there was something universal about our grief and our struggle. And therefore, to me, this is just a book about our country and ourselves. And I know that no one wants to, you know, remember bad times. But I think that as we move 
on, the one common thing between everybody I met, Soma, was everybody wanted their story to be told. Nobody wanted to be a statistic. Nobody wanted to just be a, a number without a name, right? And so I think that when deep, deep cataclysmic events happen, which seem to swallow up for that moment an entire, an entire country, which is how it felt psychologically, what people want is to be remembered. So while we want to move on, we don't want to forget. And I think you can move on without forgetting. And that is what the book tries to do. Very true, Barkha. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the podcast on Hindu books and for that wonderful conversation that we and our audience would get to hear. And I wish you all the very best for the success of your book, Barkha. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as InFocus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 